walking with Jesus is probably one of the most adventurous and uh, exhilarating and unpredictable things that you could ever do. Because you just never know what he's going to do. And you never know what he has up his sleeve. Uh, in the book of John, and we're not going to go there, so I'm not going to have you turn there. But in the book of John, there's this amazing uh, story that happens. And, and, and I think in that story, and I'll get to it in a second, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something really important. And what he's trying to teach them is that Christianity is a walk. Christianity is a walk. It's, it's not something that you do. It's someone that you are with. And Jesus was, I think this was one of the main things he was trying to communicate to his disciples continually. So in John chapter 11, when Jesus is ministering, three of his best friends were all siblings. They were named Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And one of them, Lazarus, who was dear to Jesus, Jesus had a great affection in his heart for this man, he got really sick. Now, Jesus at this point has publicly been seen as a healer. So everybody knows he has the power to heal. If he wanted to come heal his friend, he could do it. Lazarus gets really sick. He's on his deathbed. They send word um, because Lazarus is in Bethany, this little tiny town outside of Jerusalem. They send word to Jesus who's out ministering and ask him to come quickly in order to, of course, heal his friend. Jesus gets the news and he does the unexpected. He does the unpredictable thing, which is exactly what Jesus tends to do, right? He tends to do the thing that you don't expect him to do. And that is he doesn't come. It says he stays put. In fact, he stays put for four days. How many of you guys seen that, that, the show, The Chosen? Have you guys watched? It's like the new Jesus show or whatever. And I usually don't like the Jesus shows, but this one's really good, okay? And I never promote cheesy Christian show. This is not a cheesy Christian show. It's really good. It's called The Chosen. There's this scene in it, though. I love it. There's a scene where, where Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, and as he's calling it, Peter was like so confused by it. He's like, why are you calling this guy? He's a tax collector. And I love it. Jesus just turns to him and he says, get used to different. <laughs> and that's the idea. Like following Jesus was different than what you would have expected. He didn't do what you expect. He didn't say what you would have expected. He was completely outside the box. And, and this is completely unexpected. Jesus' friend is dying and he doesn't go heal him. He sits and he waits for four days. And then he gets up and he finally goes to Bethany and, and, and in order to see his friend, but his friend's already dead. He's already gone. And so Martha, the sister of Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, Martha, the practical one, you know, she comes to Jesus and she interacts with him and she says, I don't understand. You could have healed him. Why, haven't, why didn't you come? And she's, she, understandably, she's frustrated. And Jesus says, just matter of factly, he says, he'll live. He'll live. And she goes, she, now she, she went to Sunday school. She was a good Christian girl. She knew her Bible, right? Um, and, and Jews in that era, they had a pretty good theology of resurrection. She goes, yeah, he'll resurrect in the end time. Yeah, I know that he'll resurrect uh, when all things come about. And then I love what Jesus' response is to her. Listen to this. He says, no, 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 Martha. I am the resurrection. I am the life. What is he trying to get Martha to see in that moment? He's trying to get her to see that Christianity and life and resurrection is not something you go achieve, not something that you do. It's not something that you find. It's someone that you walk with. It's a person. Jesus is saying, no, 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 Martha. It's not about a resurrection in the future. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Jesus was trying to raise up disciples that saw their job as bringing Jesus into their life. And walking with him, in the, covered in the dust of their rabbi, in relationship with him. 
He wanted them to see that, that their religion wasn't about a place. You know, most religions are about a place. The sanctity of this place. You got to go to Mecca. You got to go here. You got to go there. Even, even Judaism was about a place in many ways, right? It was go to the temple. But, but New Testament Christianity, what Jesus was trying to get across was no, it's not a place, it's a person. And it's walking with that person. And when Jesus is in the mix, everything's going to work out. When Jesus is in the mix, because he is the life. That's what he was trying to communicate to them. And when Jesus is in the mix, life happens. Now, we're going to talk about what it means to walk with God. That sounds like really Christianese language, because it is. How many of you guys have heard the term, walk with God? How's your walk, man? Are you walking? How's your walk with God? Okay, and we hear that all the time. I want to give some clarity, some definition to what, the, what that means to have a walk with God, because I think it's really important. It's a biblical term. I want to use it. I want to talk about what it means to walk with God. And the way that we're going to get into this is we're going to look at a genealogy. Doesn't that make sense? Genealogy, right? I mean, that's how you, you talk about walking with God. Genesis chapter 5 is a genealogy. You guys know what genealogies are because they're the things you skip when you're reading the Bible. They're, they're the things you glaze right through. You blast right through them. And you get there, so-and-so, but God, so-and-so, but God, so-and-so, but God, so-and-so. And you're thinking, okay, I get the point. People had babies. Great. Move on. Okay. If you don't believe that, just look around the room. Okay. Um, it happens. People have babies. Okay. So this is a genealogy and it's, it's oftentimes skipped over, but we're not going to skip over. We're going to look at it and we're going to read it. So buckle up. Okay. We're going to read it. It's going to be great. You're going to enjoy it. Like it or not. Okay. Genesis chapter five. The thing about this genealogy, well, you'll see. Here's where I need the kids' help. Okay. And we're going to practice. When I say the words and he died, I need the kids to go, oh no, like that. Okay, so we're gonna practice. You guys can do this, okay? And you adults, you can do it too, okay? What's up, dude? Can you give me five? Can you give me a hug? This is, this is noble, everybody. Clap for hope. Oh, thanks, buddy. I love it. Noble is my honorary nephew. Um, okay, so I say he died, and you guys say what? Okay, great, this is great, okay. And he died. That was kind of weak. Okay. And he died. Okay, great. This is going to be fun. All right, here we go. Genesis, if you want to make a genealogy fun, this is how you do it. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Why is the author bringing back up this thing we've talked about called the Imago Dei, meaning God created humans in the image of God? And the, the reason is because he's trying to show that God is continually filling the earth with, with his image, even in spite of the progression of sin, which we talked about last week with Cody, right? Even though sin is metastasized and we've seen murder introduced into the world, we're still seeing God's image continuing to grow. So that's why the author of Genesis recites that. And then in verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, God is showing grace here. you got to see this. Remember what happened to Adam's son? He was murdered. Cain murdered Abel. Now, you kiddos, you learned about this, too, two weeks ago in your classes, okay? Cain murdered Abel. Abel was a godly man. His sacrifice was acceptable to God because it was made in faith. Cain was jealous, and Cain slayed his son, and Adam and Eve uh, lost a son. They had the tragedy of losing a son. And so God graciously provides another son, and his name is Seth. 
And the, the author here is transitioning the reader's attention from the line of Cain, which ends, by the way, to the line of Seth, which continues all the way to Christ. The New Testament authors do the same thing. They trace the line from Adam to Seth to Noah and all the way to Christ. It's really an amazing thing. So that's what's happening here in, these, in this gene- genealogy. Verse 4, the days of Adam. Are you guys ready? You ready, kids? You ready? Okay, the days after Adam, he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. (sighs) Money. Oh, man. It's the worst when you die. Okay. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. What a good name. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years had another sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. So sad. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Can everybody say Mahalalel? That's such a fun word to say, man. Mahalalel. It's literally A-L-A-L-E-L. Mahalalel. 840 year Cody. Where's Cody? That's got to be your son's name. I don't know. Okay, whatever. That'd be a great name for your son. Verse 14. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. You guys are doing great. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. And had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. He didn't die. Just note that. Praise God. (laughs) What's up with Enoch, dude? Let's talk about that. Okay. When Methuselah, oldest man alive, oldest man that ever lived. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Sorry, Methuselah. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered his son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Fantastic. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What do you do with passages like that? You're reading that, and you're just thinking, okay, like, is this, what is the point of this? Well, let me just point out a couple interesting things really quick for you. A couple interesting things to think about, because there's some amazing implications to this genealogy. For one, these guys lived an average of about 900 years, okay? So 
What does that mean if you live 900 years? That means that your kids and your grandkids and your great-great-grandkids and your great-great-great-kids and your great-great-great-great-grandkids, you're still alive. Okay, for one, that is really good for history books. Can you imagine if you were trying to write a history book about something that happened in 1050 AD and you could walk down the street and talk to somebody that lived at that point in time? I would say your history is pretty accurate. And the Bible gets a hard time. Well, how could we possibly know? You know, were you there? How do you know if God created the heavens and the earth? Well, Adam was there. And Adam was still alive for hundreds and hundreds of years. I think he would probably make sure that the history got right. So it speaks to the credibility of our book. It, it also speaks to the fact that this book that you're holding in your lap, I hope, is not a fantasy novel. It's not a made-up story. It's not a legend. It's a history book. This is reality. These are real people. These people really lived. And the Bible wrote them down. Okay? So, so why, you know, you understand that ancient people didn't put details like this into legends? They just didn't. They put details like this into histories. Okay? When you want to get the, the details right. This is not some made-up legend. It's not some allegory of creation, the beginning of man. That, that humans made up because evolution was reality. And that's not the truth. What, what really happened here is, is that these people really lived and God wrote it down. There's another facet of this to think about. Imagine how much sin you co have committed in the last, whatever, however many years you've been alive. Imagine how much sin you would commit in 800 more years. Imagine the compounding. You know, if you take a line that's a little crooked and you carry that line out over a couple inches, it's not a big deal. You take a line that's a little crooked and you carry that line over 50 miles, you're way off base. Imagine living in a sinful world, in a sinful body, in a sinful proclivity with sinful nature over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And is it any mistake or is it any shock that by Genesis chapter 6, God looks at the world and it is absolutely terrible. So bad it needs to be cleansed. Sin was prevalent. This idea that, you know, if you lived long enough, you'd finally get your act together, it's not true. You just keep on sinning. Keep on. It's a grace of God that he shortened the life. And some of you guys might be asking if you're, if you're a critical thinker, you're like, how did these people live this long? I don't know. There's some theories, you know, out there about that. There's some theories about there was a water canopy, perhaps, because it doesn't really seem like there was rain until Noah's uh, flood, you know, that maybe there's a water canopy that was filtering out UV light. And, and I don't know, it's a theory, take it or leave it. I think the reality is, as humans, we're created to live forever. Look at the way your body is designed. Your body regenerates cells. It's really good at it. It's actually weirder that your body dies than it is that it doesn't keep on living. It's, it's completely strange. And I think the farther humans got from Eden, the farther we got from the way we were supposed to be, which was to live, to live on, to continue on. I think it's a very simple reality. So what do we do with a genealogy? What, what are we supposed to, to do with this in particular? Why did I have you say, oh, no, every time somebody died? And the answer is really simple. The answer is because you, you really weren't meant to. You weren't meant to, to die. I mean, it's, it's, it's unnatural. And as you're reading this, it's, it's fairly obvious that the author intended you to notice the word die because it comes up over and over and over again. And there is a futility to each of these people that were written down. Nothing is said about their life. Nothing is said about what they did. All that's written down was they lived... A few years, they procreated, they lived some more years, and they died. 
that's pretty depressing. It's pretty depressing. I mean, how would you like that to be your life? You live, you die. I mean, your life is the dash, right, between when you, when you die or when you're born and when you die. That's your life. So, so how would you like that? But yet in the middle of this blanket of death, there is one person that puzzles the reader. They, you, you're, you're reading, he died, he died, he died, he died. Wait a minute, Enoch. Here's a guy that didn't. Why? Who is this Enoch? Why didn't he die? Why did God take him? It's interesting to, to consider. It's interesting to think about. What we do know about Enoch is one very simple thing. And I'm sure there's been many books written making speculation about what it meant for Enoch to walk with God. Did that mean physically? Did it mean that God actually walked physically with Enoch? Or was it, was it just kind of an idea that he walked, that he had a relationship with God? We don't know. And you know what? It doesn't matter. The simple fact is, and the simple thing I want you to understand is that Enoch walked with God. That's the point. The question then becomes, how do we do that? Because Enoch walked with God and he lived. How do we walk with God so that we can live? And the answer is very simple. You walk with Jesus. Jesus is God. He came into this earth so that we could walk with him. So I want to talk for the rest of our time, just a little bit longer here. I want to talk with you guys about what it means to walk with God. And I want to talk about the fact that Enoch walked with God and he lived. So we're going to just look at two things. First of all, what does it mean to walk with God? And second of all, what does it mean to live, to not be taken? So if you're a note taker, I'm just going to give you four quick things about walking with God. Okay, Four quick things about walking with God. Number one, walk is a marathon, not a sprint. Okay, Walk is a marathon, not a sprint. You know what happens a lot of time in Christianity? We, we, we enter into a relationship with God. We get saved or whatever it is, or we, we go to a church service, and we, we, we see... Um, we, we're overwhelmed by the gospel. Like, this is amazing. This is good news. I love the Lord. I'm going to follow the Lord. And what we do is we go sprint. You know, have you ever had this in your life where you felt really guilty about all the ice cream and the pizza you had the night before, and you're like, you know what? Enough of it. I'm going to be ripped. I'm going to be in shape. I'm going to be that guy or that gal that's just super in shape. So I'm going to get up tomorrow, and I'm going to, I'm going to go to the store tonight. I'm going to spend $80 on brand new running shoes. I'm going to get a full new you know, outfit on. I'm going to get up in the morning, and I'm going to run six miles, and I'm going to do sprints, and it's going to be great, and I'll be super in shape. How many of you guys ever had that? Okay, and you get up in the morning and you start running down the street. You're all pumped. You get three blocks down and you start getting a side ache and it's just, you're hurting and your calves are screaming and you feel sick and nauseous and then you end up, you know, whatever. I, you know, and then you go home and you go, well, forget that. That was terrible. I'm never, I'm not going to be in shape. I'm just not going to be the in shape person. That's not going to be me. Okay. That's a lot of the way that people approach Christianity. They go to a motivational service. They go to a camp. You know, something, something stirs them, and it's very real. Don't get me wrong. And, and most Christians start their walk this way. Something stirs them, and they go, that's it. I'm all in. I'm all out. I'm going. And they run as fast as they can, and they get a few blocks down, and they go, whoa, this is hard. My friends are making fun of me. I can't do all the sin that I used to like doing. I have this different mindset now. I mean, sin isn't as fun as it used to be because now I know what it really is. And I just, this is hard. This is terrible. And then you burn out. And then you look at the person on the stage and you go, well, I'm not like them. I'll never be like them. So I guess I'm just a, a moderate Christian. Okay, here's the reality. The Christian walk is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's about the long haul. 
It's about the long haul. It's about you living out the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life in faithfulness to God. I am so sick of seeing people that were passionate about Jesus, that gathered great followings on Instagram and YouTube and spoke in, 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 in theaters with hundreds of thousands of people and everybody looked up to them and then they walk away from their faith or they blow it. It's happening every week. I get on the news and I see. You know what the church needs right now? Faithfulness. It needs saints that are just not going to stop falling. Following, pardon me. Not going to start falling. That, that even if you fall, even if you mess up, even if you screw up, even if you feel sick, even if your calves are burning, you're going to keep running all the way to the end. That's what it means to have a walk with God. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. When you run marathons, you're not thinking about the next 10 minutes. You're thinking about the next four hours. There will be seasons in your Christian life where you don't feel like running. Put one foot in front of the other. Mile 24 of my marathon, I thought I was going to die. I'm not exaggerating. I know pastors exaggerate, okay? I seriously felt like I could curl up in the fetal position and put my thumb in my mouth and cry. I mean, it was brutal. I've never been that tired. 24 miles, four hours of running. All I could do was just take one foot and put it in front of the other. That's all I could do because I knew that finish line was coming. And that was the goal. I didn't care about how long it took. Time was in the garbage. Didn't matter. I just finished this thing. That's Christianity. Finish the race. Some of you guys are feeling tired. You're going to I used to sprint. I used to, when I first got saved, I was on fire. I did all this kind of crazy stuff. Now I'm just like barely getting by. Welcome to Christianity. There will be seasons where you struggle. Put one foot in front of the other. Get up tomorrow morning and pray. Get up tomorrow morning and talk to the Lord. I don't care what you just did. Talk to him. Walk with him. Keep walking with him. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's what God's asking you for. Just be faithful. Hang on. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's all the believers that have run the faith race before you, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with, listen, run with endurance. It's the Greek word hupomene, to bear up under whatever it is and keep going. Faithfulness, endurance, it's the biblical call. It's what it is to be a Christian. How do you know if you're really a Christian? You keep walking. That's how you know. You keep walking. A Christian doesn't stop walking. Number two, walk is an active participation, not a passive appreciation. Okay? Walk is not an active participation, or it is an active participation, not a passive appreciation. Okay? Having a walk with Jesus is not being a fan of Jesus. Those are very different things. We live in a fan culture, you know? I mean, we live in a culture where the word follow is synonymous with clicking a button. I clicked a button, now I'm a follower. That's not Christianity. When Jesus called his disciples, he said, come with me. And he called them away from something. He called them into something else. There was a cost 
associated with it. And we have examples in the New Testament of, of people that counted that cost and said no. And we have examples in the New Testament of people that counted that cost and said yes. We see the, the Peter and the other fishermen and Matthew, the tax collector, and Zacchaeus, and all of these people, when Jesus said, hey, come on, you want to follow me? Let's go. They did it. They went. But then we have other accounts of people like the rich young ruler who when Jesus said, go sell everything you have and follow me, what did they say? No. Too much. Too costly. Too, too painful. The call to walk with God is a call away from something and to someone. You hear me on that? It's a call away from something and to someone. I was watching a documentary the other day on Everest, climbing Everest. That's intense. There are literally, I don't know what you say, there's the kids in the room. There's bodies like along the way. Like they just die up there, man. It's crazy. It's another planet. And I'm watching Everest and I'm going, man, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of people that climb Everest. I'm a fan of the idea. That sounds like awesome. I will not go climb Everest. I'm not going to do it. Cost is too high. I mean, it would take my whole life to, to probably save the money and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Like, I'm not going to do it. So I'm a fan. I can appreciate it. I'm not going to participate in it. The problem we have with walking in our culture right now is that we have made Christianity something you can just appreciate and not something you have to participate in. We have people like Oprah Winfrey that appreciate Jesus, at least their version of Jesus. They appreciate Christianity. Oh, we just appreciate Christianity. But they're not followers. They're not followers. They're not following the real Christ. They're not following the real Jesus. Being a disciple is following Jesus, wherever he takes you, wherever he goes, whatever the cost. And there is a crisis point that comes when you have to choose. Am I going to follow or not? Am I going to walk or am I not going to walk? You have to make that decision. There's a crisis point. Listen to what Jesus said. Luke 9, 52. He said, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. That seems reasonable, right? We go bury my dad. We take care of my assets, right? And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, I could soften the edges of that a little bit by talking about the history of that, but the reality is, is the edges are pretty sharp. Let the dead bury your dead. You follow me. Life now, if you're a follower of Jesus, is about walking with him. It takes preeminence over everything else. Your walk with Christ is preeminent if you're a Christian. It has to be. That was what Jesus called people to when he said, follow me. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my house. Reasonable. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This nominal idea that you can be a nominal fan of Jesus and somehow be a disciple is false. Being a disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. And I don't mean on Instagram. I don't mean on YouTube. I don't mean on social media. I mean you walk with him every day. You don't always sprint, but you walk with him. You follow him. That's what Christianity is. It's a person walking with a person. And number three, walk is being with God, not getting to God. See, this is what... This is what um, delineates or, or, I should say, sets Christianity apart from false religion. False religion, the idea of walking, is about achieving or getting to or getting up the mountain or getting back to a certain place. Christianity is about being with God. You have nowhere to get to. He is already in you. 
The Spirit of God lives in you. The second you get saved, you are as saved as you can ever be. You can't be more saved right now. You can't be, the Spirit of God is in you, so what does that mean? What does walk mean then? Walk is about being with the Lord. It's about bringing him into what you're doing every day. When I got the the call that my dad's heart stopped, four in the morning, I got in my car, and I didn't know what was going to happen that morning. I didn't know if they were going to bring it back, if, if whatever. I just didn't know. And I'm driving from Grants Pass to Medford. And as I'm driving, I just have this overwhelming feeling to pray. And my prayer was very simple. I just said, God, I don't know what this morning is going to look like. I don't know what's going to happen to my dad. But no matter what happens, will you walk with me through this? Can we go through this together? Will you be in it with me? I want to walk with you in it. And you know what he did? And it was hard, but he was there every step of the way. When I, when I walked into the room and found out his heart, that, they, that he was gone. When I walked into the room and I saw his body. When I walked out of the hospital with an empty wheelchair. When I sat in my car and thought about the fact that my dad was gone. He was there with me. That is Christianity. He comes with you into these things. He's with you at work. He's, I know this is fundamental. I know this is obvious, but you need to hear it. I need to hear it. Walk with him. He walks with you. That's the relationship of being a Christian. He comes with you into these things. It's not about getting somewhere. It's about him being with you and you being with him. And lastly, as we're just trying to define this idea of walking with God, number four, walk lives to please God, not self and not others. You know, in the West, in, in, in Western Christianity, we have made Christianity about us. It's just the reality. We've, we've formed a religion that is all about our needs and our wants and our desires. And, and make no mistake, God's a good dad. He loves you. He wants good for you. Okay? But being a Christian is about living to please him. Where am I getting this? Okay, I want you to turn to Hebrews. There's one other place, um, at least that's the forefront of my mind. There's one other place in the New Testament where it talks about Enoch where it talks about Enoch, and we get a little bit of clarity into what it meant that Enoch walked with God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. You know the passage. It's the hall of faith, right? It's all of these Old Testament saints that walked with God. It starts here in verse 1, 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it people of old, that's Enoch, <clears throat> received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now listen. By faith, here he is, Enoch was taken up. Okay, so the New Testament author is connecting for us the fact that the reason Enoch was taken up, the reason he didn't die, oh no, was because he had faith. He walked with God. But what does that mean? Okay, the New Testament author tells us here in Hebrews, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having what? Pleased God. He was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. How do you please God? Not with your works. Your works are filthy rags. Please God with your faith. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, where is the author of Hebrews getting this idea that Enoch pleased God? Where does it say that in Genesis chapter 5? Well, it doesn't in your translation. There's something called the Greek Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's the Bible that Jesus probably would have read. It's the Bible that the New Testament authors would have probably read, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And what's so interesting is that the way the Greek Septuagint translates Enoch walked with God is Enoch pleased God. Isn't that interesting? What that tells us is that what it means to walk with God is to walk in such a way that pleases God. Now, this is not a call to works, because guess what? You can't please God with your works. But what this is a call to is the very DNA of what a Christian is. You know what a Christian is? Someone who lives to please God. Now, when you are born, how good are you you at walking? How good are you at walking when you're born? You, You don't walk. Okay, when you're, uh, you know, when you're like a few months old and you start kind of sitting up and then you're maybe, you know, getting close to a year old, and you're kind of hobbling around. We call them toddlers, right? And you fall down and you fall down and you fall down because you're a baby. But as you grow, you start to walk better. When you're a Christian, you are now baptized for the purpose of pleasing God. And how good are you at that at first? Not super good. But as you grow up and as you walk with God more, you start to realize that you exist for him that everything that you do should orbit around what he wants for your life. That's Christian maturity. Christian maturity says, my life's not my own. It's his. He bought me. He bought me with a price. I belong to him. And everything that I do orbits around what pleases the Lord. What is his desire? You know who modeled this perfectly? Jesus. Everything Jesus did was to please the Father. Christian maturity doesn't look like flashiness or giftedness or platform or width or, 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 or any of the, 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 the having an X amount of followers. Christian maturity is living to please God. That's what it looks like. And when we live in a way that pleases ourselves or pleases others, we're walking in immaturity. That's Christian maturity. So what did it mean that Enoch walked with God? It meant that he lived in such a way that he cared about what God thought in the midst of a sea of sinful people. I mean, it it was bad. Okay, we'll see that next week in Genesis 6, but it was bad. But Enoch walked in a way that pleased God. He cared. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. He knew why he existed. He walked to please God. Now, there's one other little thing in this verse 24 of Genesis chapter 5 that you got to see. So he walked with God and he was not. That basically just means they couldn't find him. He was not there. For God took him. What does that mean? What does it mean God took Enoch? I mean, there's all kinds of theories. And what, is that? what does that mean? It's very simple, actually. Okay? It's not resurrection. God didn't take his physical body. God, well, he did, probably somewhere. But he took him and he translated Enoch into the spiritual realm. Okay? It's the same thing that happened to uh, Elijah. Okay? It's not the bodily resurrection that's coming. It's a spiritual Resurrection. It's a spiritual taking. God took Enoch to straight to be with him. Okay, and I don't know all the, the inner workings of that, but what I do know is that what verse 24 says, Enoch walked with God and God took him, is the reason Christians have been able to put one foot in front of another for thousands of years. Because those that walk with God live. 
they live. I know you know this, but you need to be told it again. Walk with God and live. Don't, and you die. I'm not talking about your heart stopping. That's not really death. There is a more true death, an eternal death, that comes for those that don't walk with God. There is a life, an instant life, that comes to those who walk with God. Jesus said in John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has what? Eternal life. What is believe? It's walk. They're the same thing. Walk, believe, have faith. I am, he says, the bread of life. I am the bread of life. It's not something you got to go attain and get to. It's not a process or a structure or an institution or a place. It's a person. You walk with me. I am the bread of life. He says, your fathers ate manna, physical bread in the wilderness, and they're dead. They're gone. Just like every person in this lineage, dead, gone, insignificant. But those who walk with Christ live. That's what Jesus is trying to get at. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's a simple reality, but this simple, you know what's funny? When stuff gets really hard in life, you don't reach for those deep theological things that that someone said one time in the pulpit. You don't reach for those a lot of times. You pull for the, the very basic truth that you know to be true. And and you know what you know what one of those things are? Walk with God and live. Walk with God and live. Jim Elliott and his I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He was the one that, was, that died at the end of a spear, right? Um, ministering to unreached people groups, tribes. In his journal, he wrote down this passage of scripture that says, Jesus said, for whoever will save his life shall lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall have it. There's a promise. There's a promise to live by, right? Listen to what Jim Elliott wrote about that. It's famous. He said, he is no fool. Listen, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. There's a saying out there that says, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That saying is wrong. The more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you are. Why? Because you see this life as not being something to get over with, you see it as being the beginning of an eternal reality. There is continuity between this life and the next. They matter. It matters. It's important. So what you do in this life, and not to mention, you are willing to give up this life because your true life is still coming. Your truest life is still coming. And that's why James Elliott could write that simple phrase that you're no fool to give up what you cannot keep. You're going to lose your life anyway, so give it away in order to gain what you cannot possibly lose. Eternal life. This is good news. May we be so heavenly minded that we are of immense earthly good. How do Christians give their lives away? They give their lives away when they realize their truest life is coming. It's not an escapism. It's a hope. Some of you guys don't have a lot of life left. Some of you guys might go tomorrow and you don't even know. Life is just beginning for you. I know you know these things. But you know, death has a way of really making these things matter. (laughs) 
It really does. And we live in a world that's pretty sterilized from death. Enoch lived in a world where people lived a really long time, but people were dying all around him. And he didn't die because he walked with God. Your life needs to remind people of one thing, and that is what it looks like to walk with God, what it looks like to have a relationship with the person of Jesus. His spirit lives within you. I just want to encourage you guys in that this week. I want to encourage you not to let the complexity, and I'm not talking about good, robust theology. I'm talking about complexity of churchianity. Don't let the complexity of what we have made Christianity keep you from the simplicity of a relationship with Jesus every day. That's for me this week, okay? That's just what I needed to hear because I make things way too complicated. I'm like the eight-point sermon guy, right? Like God's like, no, just Sam, just walk with me, dude. Walk with me. Look at me, Sam. Put your eyes on me. Walk with me. Don't look over there. Don't look over here. I know there's shiny things everywhere. Just walk with me. That's what I needed to hear this week, and that's what you needed to hear. Don't overcomplicate it. It's simple. Walk with him. Walk with Jesus. On the other hand, don't let passivity and ambiguity of what we've made Christianity in our culture keep you from actually walking with him. Walk with him. Don't let the pace that feels like it's slow or the pit stops that you keep taking or the distractions that you keep following, don't let those keep you from getting back up and putting one foot in front of the other. You need to hear what Martha heard. Jesus says to her in the eyes, looking her in the eyes, he said, I am the resurrection. Just walk with me, Martha. That's all you got to do. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of your brother. I got this. But it's me that you need. Keep walking with me. That's what she needed to hear. May we go back to the joy and the simplicity of a wholehearted walking relationship like Enoch. Amen. Would you guys stand? Let's pray and do one last, one last song. Father, we thank you so much for these simple truths that are life-changing. And God, Lord, forgive us if we ever get so familiar with these things that they don't prick our hearts to worship. Lord, forgive us if we ever just, just assume these things. Lord, these truths are life-giving, that if we walk with you, God, you promise us eternal life. In the midst of death, in the midst of people rebelling against you, in the midst of people, Lord, that have nothing to do with you, God, you give us the privilege of walking among the dead, walking with dead people as living people, God. Thank you for that. Thank you that your spirit lives within us, your spirit lives within this church. Thank you for all these kids. Lord, I pray they would grow up to, just to, to know you, to walk with you, not to grow up to be people that just know how to function within a church institution. They know the right things to say. They know when to lift their hands. They know when to pray, how to pray. Lord, we pray they would be men and women that walk with you wholeheartedly, surrender to you, that are faithful, that endure, that are the next generation, God, of gospel proclaimers, kingdom advancers in this city, in this church, in this country. Lord, draw us close, I pray, Lord, this morning. As we just continue to sing to you, Father, we praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.